Welcome to the Power Hour. I'm Adrienne Herbert, wellness coach, international speaker and author. Each week I speak to a variety of guests from business founders to Olympic athletes, leading coaches, change makers and innovators to find out their daily habits, their rules to live by and what motivates them to get up out of bed each day. Personally, I am on a mission to encourage, motivate and inspire. So I hope that the Power Hour will help you to achieve your personal and professional goals. Welcome back to the Power Hour podcast. Today I am joined by Bruce Daisley and we're going to be discussing the science of fortitude. Bruce's new book promises to unlock the secrets of inner strength. So Bruce, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing? Thank you so much. Yes, I'm great. Thank you. Well, this is a fascinating topic. And actually, I'll be honest with you, saw the cover of the book. I was I was really lucky to receive an early copy before publication. Saw the cover of the book. I thought, okay, fortitude, secrets of inner strength. This is going to be right up my street. I'm also familiar with your book, The Joy of Work and with your podcast. So I was like, okay. And I'll be honest, it wasn't really what I expected at first, because I thought it was going to say, okay, this is what you know, fortitude is, this is what resilience is, this is how we can be more resilient, get to it. But actually very quickly, uh, I kind of, yeah, learned very quickly at the start of the book that we're almost being told, I think at the moment, by a lot of people that resilience is the antidote to all of our problems. Uh, And so I'd love to start off really by if you could talk to us about what fortitude is, the myth of resilience, and yeah, maybe that's a good place to start. Yeah, it's really interesting right now that the sort of the world is very sp- uh, evenly splitting into people who are um, believing that resilience is the answer and those who've been told that resilience is the answer and are weary of it. Um, I saw something on Instagram again this weekend uh, that's very consistent with what my friend who works in the NHS told me. She works at the Whittington Hospital and she said, if you if you mention resilience around here, people will punch you in the face because they've <laughs> They've been, you know, waiting for extra resource. They've been understaffed. They've been dealing with all manner of, of challenges of scarcity. And someone puts a poster on the wall saying resilience webinar Wednesday at 1 p.m. And um, and I think half the people who I spoke to in advance of doing the book or the, you, you write these books and it's a two year process. And, and in the course of writing this two year process, I spoke to a bundle of people who said to me, uh, they said, oh, my God, I've been on a resilience course. I'm so fed up of it. But um, I'm looking forward to reading your book. And so it was like, oh, great. Have I done something disastrous by by choosing to write about something that people are weary of? And I think the critical thing as a result is I found myself doing a slightly detective job in trying to work out where resilience actually lives um, maybe why some of the stuff we talk about it just doesn't seem to hang together and trying to understand precisely how any of us can feel stronger. Well, you definitely do a good job of playing that detective role and of essentially giving us like an unbiased view. And of course, as readers of, of any book, you always have your own bias and you always have your own feeling. And I'll be honest with you, I think I naturally sit in the first camp. So the first camp you described of people saying resilience is the answer. We need to, I guess, cultivate some kind of inner strength when it comes to facing challenges in our life, when it comes to achieving success, overcoming barriers. I am the first person to say, you can do hard things, let's roll up our sleeves 
and let's, you know, let's get to work. And I think to be honest, because of the way I grew up and, you know, I had adversity in my life. I had lots of adversity in my life. And so I think, and my siblings as well, often people will say to me, they'll say, oh, wow, you know, but if you hadn't have, you know, maybe had those experiences, you wouldn't be the, you know, competent person that you are or you wouldn't be self-sufficient or whatever so they kind of yeah do this polarizing thing of well the bigger the struggle the bigger the strength however as you've explored in your book that's not always the case is it so yeah why are we um well i guess what do you think about that and and that idea that actually yeah going through these tough things is going to make you is going to give you a positive outcome in the end and is that the case for everyone yeah, I think that that was where I started off because I was really intrigued with the likes of, you know, these incredible Olympians who we hear their backstory and we think, oh, wow, they've just accomplished so much despite this pretty wretched start to life. And, um, and you know, you, you can't help but be enchanted by the story of Simone Biles or Andy Murray or LeBron James or you know, Kelly Holmes, these pe people who've had Tom Daly, these people who've had really bad childhood adversity and yet they've triumphed, they've overcome it. Um, and what you find, therefore, you know, to some extent, there's a there's a danger of survivor's bias there that you look at these stories and you think these are teachable lesson. In fact, um, one of the, the best ways to sort of think about childhood negative childhood experience is these an incredible piece of work called the uh, it's it's known by the initials ACE ACE and it's called the adverse childhood experience index and it's a series of 10 questions in fact subsequently it's been expanded to 10 15 20 questions and uh, by answering these questions you're able to put some degree of measure on how much adversity you've experienced and so this chart it includes did you have a member of the house your household who was addicted to drugs were you ever physically abused were you ever emotionally abused were, the, were you ever uh, sexually abused and you go through all of these things and look you know to put it on record um most people about 60 percent of people can say yes to one of these questions uh, i've got an a score of four so i guess to, to some extent that means that i've got a relatively high sense of of childhood adversity but what you discover is that um, childhood adversity doesn't correlate with winning gold medals childhood adversity really doesn't correlate with being the the best tennis player in the world it correlates with a pretty wretched series of life outcomes if it's left unchecked so you know an a score of four um, you're 32 more 32 times more likely to have educational difficulties you're twice as likely to get heart disease you're twice as likely to get cancer uh, if you've got an a score of seven your life expectancy is is 20 years lower than someone who's got an A score of zero. So these things, I think, help us really pick apart this idea that in any way, hardship is the is the author of success. And it really just helps us demystify. And so for me, the process of trying to delve into that and see specifics was incredibly helpful. Hmm. Yeah, and you're right when you say about, you know, the stories being enchanting or kind of sometimes we romanticize the the outliers and yes, the struggle story where, you know, not everybody, let's be honest, is going to bounce back and become the hero or win the gold medal, as you pointed out. And so I love actually in the book when you say, you know, what doesn't kill us makes us stronger. We've all heard that, but actually what doesn't kill us 
almost kills us. And so some of those stats that you shared then, you know, it's pretty shocking to think that your life could be 20 years shorter, given, you know, the experiences that you've had uh, in, the, in the early years of your life. But I guess if someone's listening to this and you think, okay, one thing's for sure, we certainly can't go back in time and, and, and change our past, but we don't necessarily want it to define our future and say, well, it is what it is. So bringing it back to this idea that, you know, just telling people, oh, be more resilient, that isn't necessarily helpful, nor does it help people to, to change. What things can people start to do to, I guess, understand what might be impacting their their own current approach when it comes to resilience and is it something that over time with with practice with repetition they can start to improve yeah exactly that so what i ended up finding was that the version of resilience that we we have peddled to us and there's no shortage of resilience webinars there's no shortage of courses offered to to children and so I wanted to understand, firstly, whether that works. And in fact, there's a huge amount of peer reviewed lit literature that says that it doesn't work, that training doesn't work. Um, and it, it, you know, it actually achieves pretty much nothing. Um, in fact, you know, the, the biggest, I guess, victim of that is the US military has spent close to a billion dollars training all of its employees. It's got over a million employees in sort of military and non-military roles. They trained all of them and it's been deemed to have close to zero effect. In fact, when they made that resilience training voluntary, no one at all turned up. So it's clearly got a pretty bad word of mouth as well. So I wanted to understand, firstly, where who decided that that was the training we offered? And what you find is that when you delve into it, when you demystify it, um, what you find very quickly is that there is there's three components of true resilience. I call it fortitude merely as a sort of attempt to differentiate it from from the the version of resilience that we're all weary of. Um, but the there's three pillars of it: uh, control, identity, and community. And so what. Uh, the, the specific question you've got there is, I guess, the question that we are all faced with if you've had negative childhood experience is about identity revitalization. So it's saying to yourself, I am not defined by my worst experiences. And there's really beautiful work. There's, um, there's a centre at Harvard University called the Centre for the Developing Child. And the man who runs that centre says that, you know, if there's one lesson they've got about understanding adverse childhood experiences is that no life is defined by the experiences that it's already had. But the first stage of overcoming that is recognising the experiences you've had. And so that power of identity and these these really power as soon as you recognise it, these really powerful stories um, that under that help us understand how we all become like the author of our autobiography. And, you know, whether it's really accomplished, incredibly esteemed individuals like Barack Obama. Barack Obama describes how really it was till his early 20s that he really had a sense of who he was and who his identity was. And he went from being someone that I think he would in hindsight, describe a sort of a, a trivial and directionless individual. And then he developed this sense of direction, this sense that he wanted to have an impact in the world. And that sense of uh, stepping into his own identity, I think, was transformational for him. Yeah, that point of identity is a big one, because I think sometimes as well, we can 
We can be told what our identity is by others. So whether that's by teachers, whether that's by parents, we can be told, you know, this is what you're good at. This is who you are, or even just personality traits. And I am someone who, you know, I consistently encourage people to reflect and to, to actually define for themselves are you still those things or is that what you used to be? Because let's be honest, if you were told, I don't know, when you were 14 years old that you were, you know, the sporty one or that you were artistic or that you were short-tempered or whatever the, the label is, maybe you were when you were 14, but I'm sure, you know, 10, 15, 20, 30 years later, you are probably a completely different person. And so it's also exciting to think, What's the identity that you actually want to be? What's the identity that you want to become? And yeah, making sure that you are intentional about lining those up, because I love that quote that you said about, you know, the future can be so different and we don't have to be defined by, even personality traits can change, right? Yeah, most definitely. And and it really comes down to um, just understanding where we are. What you find is that when people's identity or their, their personal narrative is just the assembly of lots of random stories. What you find is that they report lower life satisfaction to some extent to make sense of like the higgledy big piggledy series of events that happen to all of us. We need to make sense of them by stringing them together. And, and you know, I guess that's the journey that Barack Obama went on or it's the journey that those sports people went on. So even though Kelly Holmes found she spent some of her childhood in an, in a foster home, she, she experienced parental abandonment, she experienced great... Um, uh, bullying and racism at school but she says sport became my identity and it's that redemptive power of saying okay I've got something that is going to elevate me from this you know I have to warn you and it's probably too complicated to go into all the details now but when all of your identity is focused into a single part a single aspect of your personality it can produce um, really a very unhealthy balance you know athletes who report that their sport is their identity it often has very um deleterious outcomes afterwards so you know half of all professional footballers get divorced within three years of of, of leaving football and you know it, it does have this big impact on us but i guess the the overall thing that I talk about and, you know, to try and sort of substantiate all this and nail some proper evidence for this is the, the most powerful thing that I could advise for anyone is that the biggest route to resilience is being connected to the people around you. Resilience, the, the way I like to think about it is, is resilience is the strength we draw from the people around us. And the best examples I can give you, you've probably got your own, but, you know, people in who survived natural disasters or people in wartime in Ukraine, for example, right now. And we look at them and we're like, wow, this is a dizzying level of, of strength that they're exhibiting. In fact, it gen generally is a reflection of the fact that they feel connected and supported and, and recognised in the eyes of others. Yeah, and I want to come on to talk about that in a moment about the the impact of others and and I guess the purpose of community. But before we before I go to that, one more thing I wanted to kind of I guess pin on was is there you know we've heard as you said about you know athletes and when when we attach our identity to one thing, whether that's winning a gold medal or even for people listening to this who you know, they're not Olympic athletes, or maybe when you listed some of the things that people consider to be trauma, it might not be as 
I don't know how you measure that, but it might be something like, okay, parents getting divorced or losing a grandparent or, you know, something that people would consider to be maybe, you know, more normal or more, more common and more, more experienced and say, oh, well, that's, that's not a big deal. You know, so my parents got divorced, big, so what? Or, you know, people kind of try to measure, you know, how big or small these, these traumas are or how much they impact us. But is there also a link between resilience uh, emotionally to stamina? So if, what I mean by stamina is, if one thing happens, okay, cool, maybe you take a little bit of time to recuperate and get over it, and then, you know, life goes on. But then if another thing happens, and another, and another, and another, because we know those people, right? I'm sure we know those people, I certainly do, who you just feel like, oh my goodness, how much more, like how many more bad things can happen to this person? And it seems to go on and on and on. And even when you mentioned right at the start about, you know, the person working for the NHS, and it's like, that's not given the last few years, it's not a week or a month where it's, you know, loads of things going on. It's, it's month after month after month. It's become years. So is there, yeah, I guess a link there between fortitude and, and our stamina or our ability to endure it for a long time before actually it kind of breaks us down and that sometimes can become people's identity. That can become their identity of my life is terrible. I'm just struggling. I'm just trying to survive and they can't really focus on anything else. Yeah, well, you've hit such a, an important thing there because um, effectively, this is the issue that I had with resilience. It effectively became a degree of victim blaming. You know, I found myself firsthand being in Beirut when there was this phenomenal explosion two years ago. And the thing that the people of Lebanon are having a very bad time of it at the moment through sort of government ineptitude and bad circumstance. They've they found themselves really beset with, like you said there, just a, a series of, of misfortunes. And when this explosion happened and it destroyed so much of the city, it's the soundtrack of the city for the next two days was people sweeping up glass, whether you were 10 miles away or whether you were 10, uh, you know, 10 minutes walk away. It's just... It was had this massive impact. Everyone on the ground was like, finally, the world will help us. Surely the world has to help us now. And yet all the news coverage and all the governmental response was, we are inspired by the resilience of the people of Beirut and the people of Lebanon. And everyone on the ground was like, are you serious? You know, you're not going to help us. You're telling us we're resilient. And what you end up with is this degree of victim blaming where... If people can't get back up on their feet, then the people who didn't offer them help will say, see, I told you we shouldn't have helped them because they're not strong enough to survive. And if if they if they don't help them then and they they do recover, people say, yeah, we told you, you you're resilient. But you end up with this is that there's a politicized agenda to it because the people who are told to be resilient by the very nature of, of what we've just said there are the victims of things. And the victims of things quite often have a racial element to it or a class-based element to it. And so effectively, you're, you know, people who remember the Bullingdon Club aren't told to be resilient, but people who maybe, you know, their school is under-resourced or their, um, their neighbourhood is beset with crime, they're told they have to be resilient. And it's there's this covert bit of victim blaming this politicized element that that was one of the things I wanted to get to the bottom of really hmm. yeah and you know it's so fascinating hearing you describe those I guess again like I think they're more extreme examples than you know our day-to-day -day lives but the word that I just comes up for me is compassion and actually 
it can be very hard. For example, you know, growing up, my mum was, she's, she was incredibly tough and she always used to, you know, say, oh, well, you know, just got to get on with it and you've just got to be tough. And she'd had a really difficult life. So therefore, if I was to complain about something, maybe that's why, again, I had that attitude of, oh, well, just roll your sleeves up and get on with it. Was because essentially that's what I was told to do from a very young age. You know, I'm talking, I don't know, eight years old. It wasn't so much, okay, let me listen. You know, how do you feel? Concerns. You know, there wasn't all this language that we have now for children to understand their emotions or their worries or anxiety it was just you know get on with it you know whether it was you know get to school or do whatever you've got to do and I think the lack of compassion that we sometimes have for other situations if we're comparing it to our own you know someone could say they've had a really difficult day because I don't know, they missed the train. And for them, that might be really terrible because, you know, they missed the train and they were late and it, or whatever. But for another person, they're thinking, oh my gosh, get over it. You know, you're not. And I think that's also something that I think older people, correct me if I'm wrong, tend to do about our, the younger generations. They'll say, oh, you know, the only thing they're worried about these days is, you know, how many Instagram likes they've got or, you know, they've got, they've got such an easy life in this younger generation, uh, snowflakes as they're, as they're often called, they just need to be more resilient because their problems don't seem as big as our problems back in the day. You know, I feel like there's that real gap of compassion because we're trying to compare apples to oranges. Yeah, it's really interesting you say that. Broadly, look, anytime that anyone tells another group to be more resilient, you need to sort of take a step back from it and say, hang on, why is that group telling this group to be resilient? So, for example, I might, you know, say to pensioners who, you know, the generation who bought their houses, as far as I could tell, for the price of a loaf of bread and a tube ticket, um, you know, we might say to them, look, you're going to have to be more resilient because we're going to have to increase the tax rates on you. And of course, they'd be furious about it. But, you know, very easily, we readily see, and it's a, it's a historical trend, we're very easy to blame the generation after us for not being resilient. And there's some really fascinating research on this. So you mentioned that easily, easy label the snowflake generation there was some really brilliant work done by uh, a woman called Jean Twenge and a, a chat to Jean Twenge she's the the world's leading expert in studying teenagers and um, and she's been studying them for a long time and look it's fair to say that her conclusion is social media has been harmful for them but she she looked at the period just at the very start of the pandemic you know so if we rewind the clock it's it's hard because subsequent parts of the pandemic we've probably heard that the pandemic had mental health problems or it was it was a loneliness epidemic so you have to take on trust that that period that she was looking at was probably the first couple of the uh, months of the pandemic when you know we were maybe all watching daily briefings we were maybe all working out how we were going to stock up uh, for, for that night's food and um, what she she's observed there is that teenagers who were having a family meal with their siblings, with their mums and dads, their resilience went up and uh, their their depression went down. And from that, you get a little clue. So even if we do want to listen, to, heed the, you know, the unfortunate labels on other people, if we are going to understand what the secrets of resilience and strength are, it's feeling connected to other people. Um, and I think that's a really important reminder, whether it's teenagers, whether it's, uh, whether it's, you know, our parents, you know, I've, I've thought about it for myself. The, the biggest predict, predictor of our well-being is the reports, is the group, number of groups that we report feeling part of. It's just a really important reminder that connectedness is the, the root of inner strength. 
Yes, and that is something I want to dive into deep now because you mentioned it a few times about community and relationships and other people. And I'm someone who, you know, I've said this so many times on this podcast, but I love people. It is what ties together everything in my life, the work that I do, you know, what gives me meaning and purpose, what motivates me. I I know that for me during lockdown, you know, even just, just the physical proximity the lack of proximity being by myself in my house it just was not good for me I don't enjoy that I love to be with others um and so I definitely want to dive in there in terms of yeah how important actually because we hear it so often don't we you know relationships the most important thing in your life and you know we've got to be connected to others but what does I suppose what does that actually mean is it just for example, quality versus quantity. So if you've got one really strong relationship in your life, maybe a spouse, a partner, maybe a friend, or maybe you don't have that, but you have 20 good friends, you know, people that you see and speak to regularly, is there, again, like data to support, which which is better? Yeah, um, the, the most interesting thing about this is you can look into this, whether it's people recovering from depression, people who, who are recovering from major heart operations, and, or, or you could look at it into to more broader just perspectives of, of people going about their everyday life. And the biggest predictor of, of recovery from those things is how many groups people report f- feeling part of. Now, sometimes in that research, um, you can count your family as part of those groups. But um, the interesting thing, it's about groups and it's about group identity. So that might be that, you know, you're a runner. Maybe it's about, um, OK, so I'm counting my running club as part of that. Or maybe you, you run alone and you might say to yourself, you know what? I'm going to turn my individual running into feeling part of a group, a running group. Um, and But it's the groups. And I'll give you probably the most pointed expression of it. There's a guy called, uh, there's a guy who wrote a book in uh, about 20 years ago in the US, a guy called Robert Putnam. It became a massive seller in the US. It was called Bowling Alone. But he said something that I think is the, the most potent way to think about this. He said, if you smoke 15 cigarettes a day, but you're also not a member of a group, I would advise you to join a group before you give up smoking. And what he meant by that is that the evidence for joining a group is so powerful that it extends your life more than um, giving up smoking will will extend your life. And I think that's the critical thing. So look, that might be that you've got a group of old school friends or college friends and you get together once every six months or you know you've got a group of people that you feel connected to in some capacity and it's about okay how can I um how can I maintain that friendship you know maybe it's a group of old colleagues or people that you worked on with a project or it doesn't have to be necessarily about work but trying to focus your attention on servicing the groups that you're part of is really critical Yeah. And again, as an extrovert, you know, that's music to my ears, but I know friends, people, colleagues who are introverts and who kind of, even just the word groups turns them away. They're like, oh, I don't, I don't know. I don't like that. And for example, I was talking to a friend this week about mental health and well-being within work setting and within, you know, how it's, how it's playing out for a lot of big organizations where they've still got lots of people working from home and the fact they're trying to get people back in the office and people just tend to focus on productivity, output, team, you know, connection in terms of, I guess, kind of this, I don't know, it kind of seems quite surface in the team building, but actually 
you know, my argument was, again, of course, saying bringing people together is so much more important than just, yeah, everyone's sitting in the same office. It is about those small everyday interactions that you might have when you're getting your lunch or when you are chatting to somebody, uh, you know, in the hallway or when you go uh, into after the meeting, as you're leaving the meeting, you know, there's different different interactions with different people. And I was speaking specifically about new joiners of companies and also younger people like maybe graduates and talking about their opportunity for upward mobility and the fact that if you can get mentorship or learn from more senior people within your organization that is going to benefit you from a career perspective but it's also going to benefit you emotionally uh, socially to yeah be around those people like literally be around them so we were talking about this and she was saying that actually a lot of the introverts in her company, she said they don't, they're so resistant to coming back into the office because they kind of, they just, their argument is I like doing my work at home. Like for example, uh, some tech engineers, they're like, I can sit on my laptop, I can get the work done. It does not matter whether I'm in the office or in my house, I just need to do the work. And actually I don't want to come to the run club. I don't want to chat to people about their <laughs> weekend or their kids. I don't care about those people at work. I don't know them. I just want to stay at home and do my work. So she's really having this battle trying to get these, you know, more introverted people to to kind of prove to them, I suppose, that there is a benefit in them coming in because at the moment, if they're if given the choice, they're not coming. So yeah, what do you think about that, Bruce? Yeah, well look, you know, I think um we're definitely going through a period where our relationship with work is changing and you know I would say it's possibly moving from something that used to be like our relationship with school which was you know sort of a community base where you'd have lots of friends there was often sort of an exciting chat where the people you socialized with were also the people that you studied with and we're moving to a relationship closer to that with college or university where the people on our course generally weren't our best friends. We often didn't used to socialise with the people on our course that much. Um, we used to work when and where we wanted and sometimes that was working at 9pm on a Wednesday night in the library and sometimes that was, you know, that was at our desks at sort of 9am and, and just working in a more routine way so we was more self-determining and we're moving from one to the other and what it can mean is that work will be less of our identity than it was in the previous era but that doesn't delete the fact that having connection to groups is a really important thing so whereas in the old days work might have provided some of that now we need to say to ourselves okay work's not providing that with me anymore you know whether you used to sit in a bank of desks and everyone used to take it in turn to make tea or whether you used to go for a drink after work and and actually it was the humor and the interaction that you achieved there that sort of filled you with it, it filled you with happiness as you went towards your weekend if you're not getting that sustenance right now from work and it's not a bad thing if you're not you need to think about how you are getting it elsewhere in your life yeah because i guess that's the point isn't it if you're not getting it there and you have an active social life and you replace it with other things and you play team sports then yeah you're probably less inclined to put effort time and energy into those more professional relationships but i think the my fear as you just pointed out actually is i think a lot of people if you take that away they probably don't have a lot of group interactions they might have one or two friends that they meet up with but i just yeah my fear is that actually people are just going to become more and more and more siloed and more and more introverted if they're already introverted and not to say that being an introvert is a bad thing because again i think i think sometimes uh, extroverts get rewarded and and it shouldn't be the case 
But yeah, I don't know, as someone who I guess wants to encourage people to take care of their emotional well-being, their physical and mental well-being, it's so connected to others we do not live our lives alone and so i think yeah if, if people could really understand the as you said there's so much science and data out there that basically says our lives our physical lives in terms of how long we live the quality of our lives and our health even even health data such as our blood pressure our heart rate all of these things are impacted negatively when we do not spend time with other humans it's really not good for us at all yeah, and I think, you know, to, to double down on exactly what you say there, sometimes we might think, oh, does this mean this is going to be a life filled with small talk and meeting strangers? Not at all. You know, this is about, okay, building, drawing people into your inner circle. I chatted to, I, I, on my podcast, I chatted to someone on a recent episode who'd written a book about how men in particular over the age of 35, 40, stop making friends. Now, you know, while your listeners might not be in that cohort themselves, they might have someone in their life who falls into that, whether that's a partner or a father or someone like that. And and recognising that that men in particular start separating themselves from those around them is a really important understanding of how the impact that that can have on what their well-being, but also the well-being of the people in their lives. So I think knowing that we've got a instinct to maybe dial down these connections and knowing that you know we should be aware of that and conscious of that and adapt to that I think it's a really important consideration for me it's where resilience lies so you know as I was putting the book together um the the book you know for me is about demystifying what we get wrong about resilience but it's also trying to work out where we can any of us can find it and and that might be you know unlocking resilience for ourselves or for our friends yeah for others you're right i guess that's where that that when you were describing that i was thinking of the grumpy old man so it's right i've got friends who will say that about their husbands actually they'll say you know their husbands don't necessarily make the effort to create social plans with their other friends and yeah one friend in particular she's kind of like you know she said if she didn't organize for them to go to places and meet with friends and meet for dinner she's like he apparently is quite happy to just never see anyone <laughs> it's yeah. kind of yeah it does you can see how actually even though we joke about it as you go into older age yeah it's, it's important that we keep those relationships going absolutely it's, it's why there's a mental health crisis for, for for that group you know the the reason why look not to be stuck about it but the reason why uh, that group is the most heavily afflicted with with suicide is because you know that group experiences the greatest levels of isolation so you know none of these things are trivial really yeah, that's a really good point. It's, it is really important. And you mentioned for a second about your podcast, Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat. So can you tell us a little bit about your podcast? What, Who do you typically speak to? What kind of topics do you cover? Yeah, the, the podcast really is sort of this attempt to assemble an understanding of where workplace cult, good workplace culture can be created. And look, you know, for a lot of us, good workplace culture was we used to have a laugh with the people we sat next to or there was good energy or we recognised that the, the energy at our current job wasn't as good as our old job and we wanted to understand how we could solve it. And for me, it's an entirely democratic process. The, the whole of podcasts and, and books is filled with these books for leaders and you know the leaders are all of a certain sort and they like to regard themselves in as this heroic 
the heroic savior of their organization and what are they going to do and he's like they talk about strategy how are they going to what strategy can they introduce i've always found workplace culture is far more democratic than that you know i went into one organization where the receptionist had changed the culture somewhere and i thought I, you know i was just intrigued i said tell me more and you know she'd invited people to she'd she'd said when she'd first joined there a couple of months in she said you know this is the worst culture i've ever worked in and someone said what do you mean and uh and she said look no one talks to each other there's no laughter there's no connection and so you know anyway no one did anything so she she took it in her own hands she went down to tesco's at lunchtime she bought four tubes of pringles uh four bags of kettle chips she laid them out on paper plates in the middle of the office and she said, ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to invite you to the best moment of the week. Here's crisp Thursday. And uh, and the thing is, like, so how trivial could it be? It's um, it was people gathering on around these paper plates to eat some Pringles. But what she discovered was people had a, a great laugh and then she did it the following week. And then it sort of became this little custom, this little ritual of the organization. And then, you know, people were like, oh, you're going to uh, you're going to Crisp Thursday. And it became a big part of the culture there. So firstly, what I love about that is that, okay, none of us can can guarantee that we're going to be the boss of an organization, but all of us can can think I've I've got some degree of empathy with the uh, the receptionist there. And so, you know, the the podcast is just about improving workplace culture, getting more out of work, understanding how we can, you know, rebalance the relationship between work in our lives. Yeah, I love that story. I mean, firstly, I love the fact that you mentioned it, that she was the receptionist, because again, I talk to people about individual ownership and impact and thinking what impact can you have and not saying, oh, well, what's the what's the organization going to do or what's the school going to do? Or like you say, what's the leader going to do? But actually, what can you do yourself? So I love that she did that as a receptionist. And secondly, I was thinking she's probably far more popular and successful in her attempts to bring people together than I sometimes am, because, of course, my recommendations when I'm working with startups or working with companies about their well-being culture is always to say, start a run club get everybody in the morning before to do a workout <laughs> together you know i'm sure she was much more um people much more enthusiastic about joining her for a plate of crisps than meeting me with your trainers on and having to go for a run on your lunch break <laughs> exactly that but you know just uh, i i'm i was so insp- so inspired by it i was thinking okay wow look you know Definitely for the people into running, then a running club is probably one of the best things, best suggestions. But, you know, I think all of us have enjoyed potato-based snacks and, uh, and, you know, in a sort of low-key way. And so it's just the podcast is just about week to week trying to understand how we can renegotiate the relationship we've got between us and our jobs. Yeah, and that is, an, for many people, an ongoing relationship which will be such a big part of our lives for so many years. I think that's something I'm thinking about now, um, maybe in more, more recent years in my 30s, is that if you're going to do something and it's going to be your career, you're going to be doing it for a long time. And so I don't know, maybe in my 20s, I was kind of like, oh, I don't know, just thinking about (laughs) what I was doing here and now. But I'm definitely thinking much more into the future these days. And it is, yeah, it's pretty shocking to think that most of us are going to be working uh, maybe into our into our 60s. And yeah, I mean, it's probably even going to change as we get older. We're going to be living longer, but we're certainly going to be working longer. So I think these this this work and understanding our relationship 
relationship with our jobs, with the people around us and with the culture and doing what we want to be doing with our most most important asset, which is essentially our time, is something we definitely need to be thinking about, all of us. Yeah, most most definitely. I mean, you, look, you've just... Uh, you just featured on an episode of the podcast yourself because I think you know the idea of the the power hour in its in its inception is such a powerful way for us to really rethink how we use our time, how we can push back against being overwhelmed. And look, you know, I think we're in an era where we've tried just freestyling work and it's ended up with work becoming more and more stressful, more and more burnout. We now need to navigate our way to being a bit more intentional about getting the best out of this difficult situation we find ourselves in. Absolutely. Intentional is everything. And yes, as Bruce just dropped in there, I was recently a guest on the Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat podcast. So if you search for that, type in Bruce's podcast and type in my name and you can have a listen to that episode. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. So, perfect segue. Thank you very much. Let's talk about the Power Hour. I'd love to know, Bruce, if you, yeah, firstly, what you think of, of the concept, you touched on it then, and what you do with the first hour of your day. It largely depends, actually. I mean, it used to be for a long time when I worked in an office. The start to my day was my run to work, and it, I loved I loved the clarity I got from that. The run to work, it was non-negotiable. I ran five days a week. Um, and because it was non-negotiable, you didn't have to go through that mental <sighs> wrestling. I mean, like even if you're a happy runner and, and a, a regular runner, um, sometimes you have equivocation about, shall I go? Shall I go? I'll go in a minute. I'll just uh, have a cup of water. And you sort of procrastinate. Whereas mine was, I leave the house at precisely this time uh, once my responsibilities were done and I used to run. And so that gave me immense clarity because it set me up that the moment I got to work, I knew that four things I was going to do and I would do them quickly and, and generally sort of um, tackle that. Now in an era when I'm not working in an office, the very, very resolutely, I'm, I'm a to-do list kind of person. I've, you know, I've got a notebook with a to-do list on, my email is a to-do list, but you know, Anything that's knotty and difficult, I always try and tackle it first thing because I know, look, I know this from writing a book. You can't, in my experience, write a chapter of anything after 4 p.m. Like your head's a, a jumble. There's too much going on. You're all over the place. Uh, in fact, the only way I've found to write in the evening is sort of a mental reset where, you know, you can do it at 7 p.m. or maybe, you know, you sort of try and clear your your head and, and go and do it then. But, yeah, so I'm very much a subscriber to the idea of a power hour. And for me, it's all about getting the biggest, most creative thing done first. 
Yeah, and just hearing that, actually, you strike me as somebody who likes routine and can be quite disciplined because as you just described running to work every day that is a routine you just get up and go I guess essentially it becomes you know quite autonomous but without that structure then that's when discipline really plays a part because you have to be self-disciplined to write an entire book and your book is you know it's lengthy so when it comes to like author to author how do you I guess firstly yeah have the fortitude to keep going and to get that done to have that discipline and what's your yeah what kind of routines or frameworks other than getting the work done early how did you avoid distractions because Bruce personally I need your help because I'm very easily distracted and yeah writing an entire book is it's not easy yeah I mean so for me it was about um recognizing the value of not only the first hour of the day but the first four hours of the day um right. and it's really interesting if you look into the habits of of people who write you get this recurrent theme whether it's jk rowling whether it's um whether it's charles dickens whether it's you know people like charles darwin they generally try to get anything that required concentration and focus done in four hours at the start of the day so charles dickens used to um used to write for four hours at the start of the day and then go for a long walk and you know sometimes a 10 mile walk um but you know where he was sort of thinking about what he was going to write the following day but um but, you know, so knowing that actually these these are diminishing return on your time. So the way I wrote the book was very much every day. It was like, OK, you're going to start work the, the moment you've got, you know, your responsibilities done. You're going to start work at nine. And so, like for example, when I've got any choice, I put calls with people in the afternoon because mm. um, I find that if I do a call at 11 o'clock, I struggle to get anything done before the call and I struggle to get anything at all done after the call. So mm. that would be a day wiped out. So whenever I've got the choice to do it, I tend to put video calls in the afternoon and I've got a little Calendly link that I send to people that says, oh, here's my calendar. But what it doesn't say is here's my calendar starting at three o'clock. And, you know, so people go to that and they choose, oh, yeah, I can see you're available tomorrow at three. I'll do it then. It's like that's by design because I don't want them to choose 11 o'clock in the morning because it will ruin my whole day. So, you know, it's about sort of getting a, a few parameters, really. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I think that morning time is so sacred for so many people and just getting your stuff done first, being able to yeah, focus on that is so important when it comes to output and creativity and yeah, definitely things like writing. And for me, I find that if I, when I'm fortunate enough to be in the flow state with writing, so I'm into something and I feel like, oh my gosh, this is this is exactly what I wanted to say. This is how I wanted to say it. Examples, yes, 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 yes. And I'm writing, writing, writing. What I find sometimes is that I, I want to over, I want to flow that, for example, over into the next day and the next day. Whereas if I haven't got consecutive days, let's say, for example, I've scheduled, okay, Friday's a writing day, but then the weekend is busy. That frustrates me because I'm thinking, oh no, now I've got all this like yeah. Yeah, ideas and energy and I've got to stop and break it. So yeah, it's, it's fascinating for me to ask other authors. As you can probably tell, I am into the process right now. And yeah, the mornings are definitely sacred, but I'm trying to, yeah, just do what I can to eliminate distractions because any distraction that comes, I will take the opportunity and then that's it. I'm, I'm off and it's really hard to get back. <laughs> precisely these things are so difficult bruce thank you so much for this episode thank you for joining us today i've really really enjoyed it and i'm sure that the listeners have too so before you go can you tell us one more time the book is out now the full title and where people can get the book 
The book's called Fortitude, Unlocking the Secrets of Inner Strength. It's really about sort of getting to the bottom of those resilient courses and you can get it anywhere, but maybe buy it, um, you know, order it from your local bookshop or, or you can get it from hive.co.uk for a cheap price, which uh, will support local bookshops along the way. Brilliant. And you also have a newsletter as well. Where can people sign up to that? Yeah, if you, uh, that's called Make Work Better. And every week I just curate some of the news items about hybrid working and what we can we can do to make it feel a bit more fun. And so that's if you just search Make Work Better or Bruce Daisley, you'll see that. Brilliant. Thank you so much. And as always, and as always, stay tuned because next week I'll be back with another episode. Have an awesome week. See you. Thank you. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 